Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figner of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt University. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we interview philosophers about their new books in areas ranging from aesthetics to ancient philosophy, epistemology and philosophy of science, ethics and social and political philosophy, metaphysics, mind, and many more. Today's interview is with Professor Beth Preston of the University of Georgia. Her new book, A Philosophy of Material Culture, Action, Function, and Mind, is just out from Routledge. Many philosophers have written on the ways in which human beings produce artifacts and on the nature of artifacts themselves, often distinguishing the act of producing or making from growing and distinguishing artifacts from natural objects. Some, such as Marx and Engels, took production to be basic to human nature. However, such discussions have tended to be theoretically restrictive. For example, in the philosophy of technology, the focus is primarily on non-religious and non-artistic artifacts. In this slim but comprehensive volume, Dr. Preston provides a foundation for understanding material culture in general. Indeed, she uses the phrase material culture to avoid the restrictive connotations of artifact and other terms commonly used in this neck of the philosophical woods. Preston approaches her subject from two basic vantage points, the philosophy of action to consider the nature of production and use of material culture, and the philosophy of function to consider the nature of the items that are produced and used. In doing so, she breaks new ground in understanding collaboration and improvisation and draws on work on biological functions and functions of systems, such as cognitive systems, to develop a concept of function appropriate to understanding the functions of the items we make and use. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, Hello, Beth Preston. Yes, hello, Carrie. Hi, so welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Well, thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, It's great. I'm I'm looking forward to talking about your your new book, um, which is a theory of uh, gives us a theory of material culture, drawing from work in action, philosophy of action, um, philosophy of function, and and mind. Um, and so I think uh, the probably the best way to uh, approach the book is to explain your interest in these areas, which is sort of longstanding from a lot of different perspectives. Um, and so how all these longstanding interests that you had in, in philosophy of action, philosophy of technology, and philosophy of mind have sort of come together in this particular volume. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so, well, probably I should start by confessing that I've always been fascinated by material culture. And in fact, some of my friends won't even go to museums with me anymore because I read all the labels. <laughs> um, but as far as my academic interest, it really goes back to my dissertation. Uh, I wrote about artificial intelligence. And I was writing about it from a philosophy of mind perspective and with particular interest in critiques of artificial intelligence, especially the one by Hubert Dreyfus. Um, but in the process of writing the dissertation, 
I learned quite a lot about robotics, which I found particularly interesting. I was living in Boston at the time, and I had friends. I had made friends with graduate students over at the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory there. Um, and some of them were in the laboratory of Rodney Brooks, who, as you probably know, put out a whole series of very interesting robots um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, so one of the things that interested me about these robots is that their, their environment was the AI lab. So they were actually wandering around in a built environment with artifacts right and left. Um, in fact, they didn't have any contact with the, you know, what we think of as the natural world, although, of course, they had contact with people. Um, so I began to wonder, you know, what, what would you have to do with a robot to get it to recognize material culture as material culture? And to understand the functions and the purposes and the implications of material culture. Um, but I didn't, at that point, have time to worry about that very much, so I didn't really get back to this until after I got tenure and I was looking for a new project, and that appealed to me. So I wrote a couple of papers, one of them called Cognition and Tool Use that came out in uh, Mind and Language, where I tried to come up with a reasonable account of what a tool is and what it means to use a tool. And then um, a bit later, although they came out the same year, but it was written a bit later, um, a piece called Why is a Wing Like a Spoon, in which I tried to start working on a theory of function for material culture. So the book really grew out of those two articles, the second one especially. So, um, all right, the phrase material culture, uh, you, you start the book by, you know, trying on various, you know, more commonly used terms like, you know, artifact, obviously, um, and others, um, and you discard each of them and you sort of go with, well, I'm going to go with material culture. Um, so maybe you might Say a word about why you find that concept um, more suitable to capture the sort of your the intended target of your book than any of the others. Yes, um, that is an important point, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. So let me just talk about artifact. There are some other terms, as you say, that I considered, but artifact is really the obvious one that people would expect me to use and that mm. I don't use. So, um, so the real problem with artifact is that there is a literature in which artifacts are talked about. Um, some people, for instance, Risto Hilpinen is, is an early uh, person in this field. But the problem is that as artifacts have traditionally been talked about and defined, a lot of the things that are in the domain of interest for me are not included. So artifact is usually defined as something that is made by human beings and often even more restrictively of something that is intentionally made by human beings. Um, so the problem is that some of the things that I want to talk about are not made. So if a person picks up a rock and uses it as a hammer, I want to be able to talk about that and to compare it with the use of a purposely designed hammer, um, for instance. Um, 
And if I'm just talking about artifacts, then I'm stuck with the purposely designed hammer. Um, similarly, some things that I want to talk about are not intentionally made, although they are made. So consider a path. Um, paths just appear. Right? You know, people just walk in certain areas and um, the, the paths show up. So they're not intentionally made, but they're certainly made. And I want to be able to talk about them as, you know, aspects of the domain of interest. Um, and in addition, artifact tends to be used for, I think, what J.L. Austin called medium-sized dry goods. Right. You know, so coffee cups and tables are clearly artifacts. But when you start talking about roads or bridges or monumental architecture, people don't tend to use the word artifact for those. So, um, and I want to talk about those larger structures of the built environment as well. Um, so, artifact just has two restricted a meaning in its philosophical use, at least. Okay, so um, how then do you um, kind of demarcate uh, what you call an item of material culture from uh, from something that isn't? Yeah, actually, that's something I just try to avoid. <laughs> so here's the thing: um, I don't. I'm not doing ontology here. Okay. You know, by using the term material culture, I'm, I'm not making any ontological claims. What I'm trying to do is delineate a, a focus and a range of things that I'm interested in. Uh, and this term material culture is used. It's not used in philosophy. Um, it is used in archaeology, uh, material culture studies, design studies, anthropology. Um, and it's used in a very wide way so as to include all of those things that I just listed that the term artifact usually excludes. Um, and in archaeology and anthropology, people, and particularly in material culture studies, people who uh, write about uh, material culture often start by saying specifically, I don't want to say exactly where material culture stops and something else starts um, because that um, makes the concept rigid in a way that's unhelpful. Uh -huh. uh, so we want to maybe discover the boundaries. We don't want to start by sort of positing them. And, you know, the other thing I have to say about this is I sort of have an in-principle argument for this, which is that uh, the central terms in almost any area of interest tend to be exactly the ones that you don't want to define up front very mm -hmm. strictly. So if we take mind, for instance, um, the whole literature, the recent literature in the extended mind, for instance, tells us precisely that one of the issues is what a mind is. Right? Right. So you don't want to uh, exclude any of the options by saying, well, I'm just going to define mind stipulatively up front. I only mean this. And if anybody wants to talk about something else, well, they're not talking about minds. So I don't want to get into that difficulty with the domain of interest that I have. I want to leave the boundaries of it open and even contestable. Um, okay. Fair, fair enough. Um, uh, so you divide the book into um, two parts, uh, one focusing on philosophy of action uh, and the other 
uh, focusing on the philosophy of, of function. Um, so if we focus first on the, um, the aspect of action, of, of producing these um, items of material culture, whether, again, whether they're produced intentionally or like your example of a path, you know, they just, you know, appear in some unintended way. Um, or at least on your view, yeah. Can we get use in there as well? <laughs> yeah, use too, uh, yes. Um, so um, maybe uh, probably the best way to uh, get at your view is um, if you could contrast it with what you call centralized control theory and then um, how you focus on the two main areas, I suppose, where you think that is, you know, sadly wanting. Um, first, in the nature of uh, collaborative action, and then in understanding um, improvisation. Yeah, so uh, the idea behind centralized control is a, a sort of model of action that is quite traditional. In the first chapter, I go through Aristotle, um, Karl Marx, and also uh, a recent book by Randall Dipert, um, where um, they all have this model of action, um, which is centered on the individual, on um, the intentions that the individual has, so it's a quite mentalistic model, um, and on the... Uh, at least in the more recent versions where intentions are understood in terms of plans on action as sort of the execution of the plan that constitutes the intention. Um, and the, as you say, the, there are two difficulties with this. Uh, one is that it doesn't um, certainly take up the notion of joint action or collaborative action, whatever you want to call it, um, acting in concert with others. Um, and it's not clear that it lends itself very easily to that because, of course, you then have to start talking about collective intentions and those are notoriously sticky and so on. Uh, but the other thing that was even more important to me, at least in the beginning, was that um, the centralized control theory, especially in its more recent versions where it is planning-based, um, makes improvisation uh, invisible as a phenomenon. And the way it does this, basically, uh, let me say a little bit more about planning theory of intention. So uh, action theorists, and by the way, I, I should also say that I didn't actually have any particular interest in action theory before I started this book. So um, I sort of got myself up to speed um, in action theory to, you know, write the first part of this book. So I have very specific and, and rather narrow interest in action theory. I'm not an expert on the entire field. Um, but um, what I'm really interested in is, uh, you know, how um, people have understood the way action is structured. And the standard way of doing this in Anglo-American action theory recently has been to understand action as intentional and to understand intentions in terms of plans uh, for good and sufficient reason. Intentions used to be understood in terms of some kind of configuration of beliefs and desires, but that didn't really seem to work very well. Um, so uh, people have moved to this kind of planning theory. Um, 
So the problem is then that wherever you've got an action, it's thought you have an intention, and where you've got an intention, it's thought you've got a plan, and that makes it look like all action is, in some sense or other, planned. <laughs> and of course, the action theory has to kind of stretch the sort of basic idea of what a plan is in order to accommodate this, but usually they've been quite willing to do that. So um, they have been you know, more reluctant to let go of the planning theory of intention than they have been to stretch the notion of what a plan is. Um, so it's the whole notion of action that's unplanned or improvised is, um, if not excluded, at least um, covered up, disguised, or you know, made made invisible in some way. So, um, how do you? Um, I mean, could you tell us about how you structure or theorize about um, improvisation? Yeah. So. The, the idea is this. Uh, when I talk about improvisation, by the way, I, I don't just mean spontaneous actions. This is something that a lot of action theorists have talked about. Um, so, for instance, a spontaneous action would be when you duck to avoid something that's thrown at you, for instance. Um, and there are various arguments about whether we should consider those kinds of actions uh, intentional or not. And if intentional, can we say what the plan is? Because it seems like you don't really have time to formulate one and you know, so on. Um, but I'm really not that interested in spontaneous actions. What I'm really interested in is uh, action sequences that have a, a larger structure and that take place over much longer periods of time. So they might include spontaneous actions. But they might even be concatenations of spontaneous actions. But they're, you know, I'm interested in these larger scale action structures. And uh, the real problem is, okay, someone who's improvising, they they need to structure their action. It needs to hang together. It needs to be coherent. It needs to be directed. But they don't have a plan that they've concocted in advance that does all that for them. So the question I had was, how do they do that? You know, what resources other than plans can um, people or indeed other animals use to structure their actions in an ongoing and large-scale sort of way? Um, Okay, so would you like me to talk a little bit about what I came up with as an answer? Yeah, no, absolutely, because, well, before I follow up question, but yeah, mm mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I the account I have, and it's just the beginning of an account of improvisation. I'm not claiming that this is some kind of an exhaustive account, but uh, on my view, improvisation is structured by what I call strategies. And these are very general kinds of procedures for generating and concatenating actions without the benefit of an advanced plan. And I talk about three of them in the book. There may well be more. Um, these are the three that I came up with. Um, the first one I call appropriate and extend. And it starts from the observation that an improvised action um, is always situated. So you always have something in your environment or in your repertoire of skills or 
habits or whatever, you always have something to work with. Uh, so basically what you do in order to improvise is start with something that's to hand and uh, then extend it in the direction that you want to go. So to give a very simple example, you come home from work, you've had no time at all to think about what to have for dinner, um, so you're going to have to improvise something. And the obvious way to start is just by opening the refrigerator or a cabinet and looking to see what you've got. Mm -hmm. And let's suppose you have eggs. Um, and then you think, okay, eggs, that's, they go with a lot of things. What else do I have here? And you find some bread and, you know, there you've got a sandwich or poached eggs on toast or something. Um, or top chef. (laughs) Yes. Um, so, uh, so that's appropriate and extend. Uh, The second strategy I call proliferate and select, and this has more to do with generating candidate actions. So when there isn't anything obviously to hand and you need to kind of generate options. Um, So just, again, to go back to our simple um, example here, uh, you've got eggs, but, you know, eggs by themselves don't tell you what to do with them. So you you might want to start by generating some options like, do I want to... Um, have an egg salad sandwich or do I want to just scramble them and have a scrambled egg sandwich or fry them and have a fry or, you know, poach them. So, so you, you generate some options and then you choose between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are lots of ways of generating these options. And I, I talk in detail uh, in the book about uh, ways in which people do this. They're actually quite interesting. Uh, and finally, this last strategy I talk about I, is called turn-taking. Um, this isn't my coinage. I got it from conversation analysis, which is um, an outgrowth of ethnomethodology. Um, basically, what conversation analysis does is analyze what people do in conversations. And the reason this interested me be, is because conversations are improvised. Mm-hmm. People, you might plan to have a conversation, but you don't uh, normally plan what the conversation is going to be. You pretty much can't because you don't know what the other person is going to say, right? You just right. have to be ready to respond. Um, and that's a lot of what improvisation involves is this readiness to respond in various ways. Um, so my idea was to kind of generalize turn-taking from conversation to action. And it's a little different in action than in conversation because in conversation, turns are only had by one person at a time, and a lot of the interest in conversation analysis is figuring out what the rules are that the participants are orienting to when they uh, negotiate who gets the next turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a lot to be said about that. In action, um, there's a lot to be said about that as well. And also, uh, turns can be simultaneous. So if you take a baseball game, when it's my turn to pitch, it might be your turn at bat. Um, right. So, um, I mean, so there's a kind of an interesting tripartite division, if you if if you if I might put it that way, between. Uh, you know, uh, some 
might say unplanned or spontaneous sorts of actions, um, and then these sort of Im improvised, improvisational things, and then the planned actions. And so you're trying to carve out a sort of a, a space or at least theorize about this sort of medium thing where it, there's skill involved. Um, language is a perfect example. Um, mm -hmm. Or in the interviews you do with, with guitar players, you know, what a novice, you know, somebody who doesn't, who knows how to play guitar but is fairly new at it, and then an expert. Um, the, the expert, the skilled person, can improvise, and for some reason the uh, the novice really can't. I mean, they can they can do stuff, but it's sort of chaotic in a way that the impro the the result of improvisation is quite is quite different. And so, um, uh, you know, is is it is it correct to think of you know what you're trying to do here as you know, trying to give a basis for this, you know, sort of medium term where it's it's skilled, but it's not. Um, it's not like you've got this full, uh, you know, full step by step plan already. You know, sort of in your head. I mean, you call it a strategy, but I suppose the the uh, the connection that I would like to hear more about is between you know, sort of having a strategy and having a skill, but not having a plan. Yeah, okay, so uh, I didn't really talk that much about skill in the book, but um, I do have some things to say. So, uh, first of all, uh, there are some improvisational skills that all of us are masters of, so conversation for one. Um, you can have a, a masterful conversation with a three-year-old, basically, so they're already very skilled at improvising in language. There are other kinds of improvisation that are diff more difficult to learn. And improvisation in music, uh, if you're talking about, you know, say, a jazz guitarist improvising, um, that's a skill that's not all that easy to learn. And even some very uh, technically highly skilled musicians can't do it very well. So, for instance, a classically trained guitarist might not have very good improvisational skills. Um, so, um, so there's, there's that issue now with regard, and that's, uh, one reason why I, I talk about songwriting rather than improvisation in performance, uh -huh. because improvisation in performance is a very special skill. It's also very restricted. You can't, um, you know, if you make a mistake, you just have to go on, right? You know, it's not like in a conversation where you can say, no, no, wait, I didn't mean to say that. Let me back up. <laughs> you know? right. um, so, uh, so in improvisational theater or improvisational music where you're performing, um, that's, a, that's a very special kind of improvisation. I don't think it's a good model for improvisation in general, although obviously it's related in a lot of ways. Um, with regard to the novice, um, I'm not really very sure uh, exactly what to say here because I think in some respects, if you have a novice guitar player who's just kind of fooling around, um, they are improvising. They're not doing it in a musically highly effective way, the way the accomplished jazz guitarist would do, um, but they are improvising in music, right? Um, 
Okay. There are there are other kinds of skills like you know conversation where you know novices almost don't exist. You know, by the time a child is you know only a year and a half old, they're having conversations. They're almost not novices anymore. So um, I, I know that in uh, for instance the analysis that Hubert Dreyfus gives of um, novice and skilled action. He wants to say that what the novice does is very different Mm -hmm. than what the skilled actor does. I think he's probably right about some domains of action, but I'm pretty sure he's wrong about others. Uh Um, So um, this is an issue that I think requires a lot more reflection and study than, than I've had a chance to give it yet, although it's one thing that that I would like to talk more about. Well, this is actually, I, I, I was thinking of, about uh, Dreyfus and his, um, uh, as, as you're well aware of his critiques of, of AI, you know, back in the day, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, can't, uh, that, you know, you can't program, you know, we don't run by a program, you know, the basic idea, we're skilled um, interactors with our environment and so forth. Um, and um, I was just wondering, I mean, he did try to say, well, you, you can't, you know, you can't, you know, AI is bound to fail, you know, because of these reasons. And, um, and of course, the response to him has been, uh, we just need to build better programs, basically. Yes. Um, and in, in a sense, it's the response of somebody in a more, from a more conventional action theorist um, might say to what you say about improvisation, about strategies, is, is something to the effect of, well, you know, I mean, call them strategies, I'm going to call them plans uh, or high-level plans or abstract plans, you know, things that tell me, you know, if I do this, then I've got these various, you know, uh, options ahead of me. Um but they might, uh, but there's no sort of in-principled reason why these things just aren't, you know, they're, they're, why they're not plans or why, to answer the Dreyfus issue, why this sort of human action can't be, um, can't be programmed in some, in some sense. If we just had enough, you know, uh, you know, computational memory and the right sorts of programs and so forth. Um, so do you, where do you stand on that? I mean, are you sort of with Dreyfus that this, you know, that, that you, that there's a principal distinction here of some sort, or um, do you think, uh, do you disagree with him on that? Yeah, well, that's a complicated question. That takes me back to my days as a graduate student, actually. Um, but um, let me start by saying, uh, I I do actually think his critique of AI is probably the most interesting one. Um, and if any of them are right, it's more likely to be his than, say, Searle's. Um, but it's clear that Dreyfus was also wrong in certain respects. So there was a point at which he was saying computers will never be able to play chess. And he was wrong about that. Um, So I think you're quite right to say, and and the AI proponents you're standing in for here would be quite right to say, well, we don't know. We haven't tried to write those programs. Um, Let's let's try to do that and see whether we can or not. I don't have 
any predictions about whether robots, say, could be programmed to improvise in the way that the songwriters I talked to do, mm-hmm. and, and, and in the way that we all do when we have conversations. Obviously, if natural language, you know, programming computers to engage in natural uh, language uh, is going to work, they're going to have to be able to do that, right? So, um, so in that respect, I think it's an empirical question. Uh, I, I'm, I hope I live long enough to see how it comes out. Um, with regard to Dreyfus's position more generally, I'm not quite as radical as he is. Uh, I, I don't um, want to say, as he seems to want to say, um, that when we uh, act, we are simply not engaging in any kind of representational, mental representation okay, good, yeah. of any kind. Um, I'm perfectly willing to allow for certainly mental states that play a central role in our acting and even mental representations. Um, I've given up trying to figure out what a mental representation is. I don't have my own theory of that. Um, but if someone comes up with one that I like, I'm perfectly happy to adopt it. I don't see what the alternative is really at this point. Um, so, uh, although I've certainly learned an awful lot from Dreyfus over the years, and I think his work is really important in sort of pushing people to pay more attention to certain issues, um, and and actually, I should mention, back in the days when I was writing my dissertation, the students over at the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT that I was talking to, uh, we were reading Heidegger and Dreyfus together. I mean, they were interested in me because I knew about that stuff, and I was interested in them because they knew about AI. Um, and that was sort of the basis of the collaboration that we were engaged in. And they were precisely interested in uh the question of whether um, AI systems could be built to uh, do the kinds of things that Dreyfus was saying they would have to do in order to behave at at the level that human beings are even intelligent, non-human animals do. Right. Well, we, I mean, uh, you know, we now are in the age of Siri and, and uh, uh, we're, where language or artificial language you know, programs are have gotten a lot better. Yes. Um, and in remarkable ways. And, and I'm not sure, I, I assume that you would not want to yet, to, at least, to say that what Siri does is, is improvise in any way. Yeah, um, I would have to know more about Siri <laughs> than I do in order to say whether anything that Siri does would, would fall under any of the things that I talked about in this book. Um, it, it might in a rudimentary sort of way. I can't rule that out, but I would have to you know, look at you know, the way Siri is programmed and the way, I guess it's a she, um, she <laughs> interacts with um, her human clients. In order to say more about that, yeah. Um, so you mentioned co- uh, collaboration just between you and you know the people in the robotics labs. Um, <laughs> so I did, did want to move on to the issue of collaboration, and um, so you, you you first establish a 
a relationship that uh, between individuals and society as as you put it mutually constituting and um you distinguish between a view probably more standard view that you call sui generism and then your own view of, of socio generism so maybe you could say a word about the that distinction and then how that informs your account of of collabor- collaboration sure um, so the distinction between sui generism and socio-generism, uh, those are terms that I'm using um, to kind of collect under each of them a whole array of different views. Um, and neither socio-generism is the one that I prefer myself, but it's, it's not a view that I invented. <laughs> there have been uh, many people who have had versions of this view. Uh, some of the people that I do talk about a little bit in the book, or at least mention, um, Anthony Giddens, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, uh, Michel Foucault. Um, so um, the difference basically is this. Uh, it's a distinction that has to do with the relationship between individuals and the societies that they live in. And roughly the distinction is between a view um, that takes the individual to be basic and self-generating and then takes society to be a configuration of such individuals. Uh, That's what I call sui generism. So to indicate that the individual is sui generic. Um, uh, The other view is of course, the opposite, where you take society to be basic and you think of society as generating individuals of certain sorts. Uh, Another person I can mention in this connection is Annette Beyer, Mm -hmm. um, who has this very nice piece on the mental commons where she talks about how children are, you know, they come into the world and they develop in light of um, institutions and practices and norms and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, So this distinction between sui generic and socio-generic approaches um, informs not only my account of action, but also my account of function. And maybe we can get to that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, so to get at the reasons for bringing it into action theory, um, I wanted to talk about collaborative action or, you know, about just to use a, as neutral a term as possible, multiple agent action, um, because obviously a lot of what we do, we do in concert with other people and the centralized control model, as I said, doesn't really lend itself to that. Um, and although there is a, a growing literature on uh, joint action mm-hmm. in action theory now, when, when I first started dipping into action theory, it was pretty thin. It's gotten a lot uh, thicker since, since then. Um, but I had some problems with the way they were going about it. Uh, and in particular, they seemed to take this sui generic approach where they would start with individuals and try to sort of build up um, joint or collective action out of individuals. So the particular view that I focus on in my book is plural subject theory, which is Margaret Gilbert's um, theory. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, 
The problem is that uh, for Gilbert, and, and I think there are many aspects of her view which are really exciting, and I've learned an awful lot from her. Um, but I, I do think there's this one very difficult problem with the view, which is that she thinks of plural subjects as um, being uh, built up out of the decisions or commitments that the participants make when they enter into the plural subject. Okay, so it's, it's a it's a view where, well, to take her example, which it's a wonderful example of, of people, two people taking a walk together. Mm-hmm. And I think their names are Jack and Sue, if I remember correctly. Um, so Jack and Sue agree to take a walk together. And what um, Gilbert says is, once they commit themselves to taking this walk together, there are certain obligations and responsibilities that flow from that agreement to walk together. So she says, for instance, if Sue is lagging behind, Jack has the right to rebuke her for doing so, and she has the obligation to catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the problem with that is that that's only true in certain cultural circumstances given certain cultural norms and practices and so on. So if we're in Saudi Arabia um, and Sue did catch up, Jack would probably have to rebuke her for not lagging behind. <laughs> um, so, right. uh, Or, you know, it makes a difference if the person is lagging behind, you know, because they're just dawdling and being sulky or if they're, you know, lagging because they're old or disabled or something like that. Um, so, um, so my feeling is that all the, the obligations and, and, uh, so on that Gilbert wants to talk about as being created by the participants sort of out of whole cloth when they form the plural subject, um, on my view, they actually import all of those or most of those into the plural subject uh, from the society and culture in which the individuals, to which the individuals already belong and by which the individuals have already been formed and socialized and and so on. Um, Okay, so am I answering your question? Yeah. Are we going where you want to go? Okay. Um, So... um, So how... Yeah, go ahead. Do you want me to talk about function theory at this point, or would you would you rather have me save that until later? Uh, well, talk about how it comes up in function theory. Well, if if that seems to be the natural place to go, go ahead. Okay. Um, so in function theory, uh, what pushes you, me and what I think should push everyone in the direction of a more socio-generic view um, is the notion of proper function, which is an idea I originally got from uh, Ruth Millikan, obviously, although I've had to revise it in order to get it to to work in the context of material culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But the proper functions of items of material culture um, clearly are, at least clearly in my view anyway, are social products. So the proper function of a spoon is not settled by me or you or any collection of contemporaneous users of spoons, the proper function of spoons has been settled by our ancestors who 
made and used spoons. Um, so we get born into a spoon-using society, and we learn the proper function of spoons. And in learning those that proper function, we also acquire the purposes that correspond to that proper function. So we have to say that the material culture and the functions that are already, the proper functions that are already ongoing and standardized and established in that culture have as much to do with the formation of the individuals who are born into that culture as those individuals later do in the um, maintenance and change in the material culture of that society. Um, well, this, uh, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand, um, so the, the persons are somehow, how, how are you dividing up sort of the, the individuals who are sort of not items of material culture, um, from the items or individuals that are items of material culture, such that, um, it seems like the, the, the people, right, um, mm -hmm. are partly constituted by uh, by the society that they're in, um, but then the the functions uh, seem to be uh, assigned to particular items within that material culture. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a little, I'm a little, just a little. If you could clarify a little bit how. Um, you know how the the sociogenerism sort of fits with the um, the um, the way you seem to be theorizing about the the items in the material culture. Yeah. So uh, on one side, on the side of the people, you have purposes, and on the other side, you have functions, and they correspond to each other when. Things are going right. Uh -huh. Okay, so so when things are going right, um, I have a, the purpose of writing something, and there's something with a function that allows me to do that, like a pencil or a pen. Yeah. Um, so so that roughly is how I'm distinguishing it. Now, there is one very important uh, theory in which those two things are not so strictly distinguished, and that's action network theory. Um, so this is something that's associated with John Law and Bruno Latour and some other people. Mm -hmm. And um, they want to just talk about um, things and people as sort of nodes in a network. Uh -huh. um, and they don't want to distinguish very strictly between human agency and what things do. Right. Okay. That's, that's sort of what I'm... You're worried that I'm well, going in that direction. Well, I'm not worried so much as, is that really the direction you ought to be going? I hope it's not a slippery slope because I don't think I want to slide all the way down it. Okay, so maybe maybe this is, maybe you can sort of go into why you, you know, what that view is that you want to avoid. Well, I think you, you lose some um, possibly important distinctions. Uh, so on the side of people, the users and producers of culture, um, it 
does seem like you have mental states and some kind of agency that has characteristics that certainly differ from whatever kind of agency you want to say things have. Uh huh. Um, and there are lots of things in between. So, you know, non-human animals, for instance, who almost never get mentioned in all of these discussions, uh, certainly in a sense you want to say that your cat or your dog is an agent, but probably not in the same way that human beings are. Mm-hmm. Um, are toads agents? Well, they, they certainly seem a lot more agential than African violets do, but, you know. Um, so, uh, so I think there are a lot of big questions here about, you know, what agency is and how we want to, you know, draw various lines across the landscape of agency for, you know, whatever theoretical purposes we may have. What I worry about with actor network theory is that they're not willing to draw lines where lines would be epistemically useful and maybe theoretically important. Uh-huh. Um, now, I say that I'm not an expert in actor network theory. I have read some things and I found it very interesting and, again, extremely inspirational um, in a lot of ways. Um, but I have some worries about it. Yeah. Well, let me... Um so, I mean, one of the things that you do in, uh, when you, in your discussion of function is to uh, de-emphasize the role of intention. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you sort of specify two sorts of problems you raise for the, uh, um, for the idea that intentions should be given the central place that they are. One you call the novel prototype problem and the other the, the phantom function um, issue. Um, so maybe you could say a bit about that form of, you know, anti-intentionalism. I know it's not anti-representationalism, but, um, you know, to the, the, the role of intentions, you know, belief, desire, complexes, whatever. Um, but then the second part of that is, well, then, you know, the more you sort of want to marginalize intention, it seems like drawing this distinction between, you know, an agent and, you know, the sort of the non-agents um, is, is going to be increasingly problematic. Well, it would be, except that I don't want to get rid of intention. Right. I, in fact, I usually speak in terms of non-intentional um, or probably it would have even been better to say quasi-intentional or something like that. I'm not anti-intention. Right. Um, so with regard to distinguishing, say, my desk from my cat, <laughs> um, uh, I would like to say that my cat has intentions and my desk does not. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so I'm, I'm allowing for that, but at, at least that much of a distinction, which is pretty important as far as I can tell. But anyway, um, as, as far as my non-intentional approach, the difficulty I have is that as material culture has been talked about in uh, philosophy, intention has actually been given a kind of pride of place, which I think it doesn't warrant. Uh-huh. And um, I think there are some problems, some of which have not even been really fully explored or recognized. 
um, with giving intention this kind of um, important central role. So what I'm really concerned to do is, uh, I don't even want to say marginalized intention. I just want to make sure that it's estimated at its right value and given its proper place in an account of function in material culture. Uh, the problem has been that it's been running the show, and I don't think it, I don't think it does a very good job of that. So, so what would, could you maybe mention the 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 two problems, the novel yeah. prototypes, the phantom function? Yeah, let me start with novel prototypes. So, a novel prototype is uh, a device, say that's uh, new that some inventor has come up with, mm -hmm. and then the question is, well. Where does it get its function? And this is a question because particularly with regard to proper functions, um, on Millikan's view and on mine as well, proper functions are established by a history of uh, use and, and reproduction, mm -hmm. um, or on Millikan's view, uh, selection and reproduction. And of course, the novel prototype doesn't have that history. So it looks like it can't have a proper function. Now, Millikan and an awful lot of other people um, solve this problem by saying, oh, well, there are actually two ways that a thing can get a proper function. It can get it from a history of the sort I've just been describing, or it could get it from the designer of the novel prototype. Mm -hmm. So the designer has this intention to design a thing to do a certain, to perform a certain uh, function. Right. Um, and that's the proper function that the thing has. Right. Um, now, it seems to me there are a lot of problems with this, but one of them is that it gives designers' intentions this kind of special privilege, which I, for the life of me, cannot see the warrant for. Um, so one problem is that I don't understand why designers' intentions should have that privilege and users' intentions don't. So if a designer designs a novel prototype and a user gets hold of it and uses it for something else that the designer hadn't even envisaged, why isn't it now why doesn't it now have a proper function given by the user? Given by the user, right? Right. Um, and clearly we don't think it does, right? So um, and the other problem well there are there are a number of others, but perhaps the, the other one that, that I think is actually probably most important is that it gives designers intentions this kind of strange status where their intentions can't ever be frustrated when they're intending for something to have a, a proper function. Mm -hmm. So they're designing some device and they intended to have a certain function. It can't fail to have that function um, if this uh, intentionalist account is right. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a very odd thing to say about intentions because normally we think about intentions as precisely the kind of thing that can fail all the time. Right. Um, so this just makes me very suspicious. I, I just don't think that we ought to be saying that designers' intentions have this special status or this special privilege. Yeah. So then the question is, what do I want to say about the functions of novel prototypes? 
um, what I want to say is they don't have proper functions. They just don't. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some things don't, right? Um, they do have another kind of function that I think is very important, and that is what I call system function. Mm-hmm. This is an idea that I get from Rob Cummins. Um, so it's, it's different than proper function in that the function is established by the role that something plays in a system. So um, if uh, so, the system function of a pencil is, as it happens, the same as its proper function, which is writing. Because you know the pencil, if when the pencil is in um, a an office, it's in the context of a system of other things for writing with and writing on and so on, um, and it gets its system function from that context. Now, if I take that pencil home and I take it out to my gardening shed and I use it as a dibble to make holes in potting soil to put seedlings into for transplanting, (laughs) then it has a system function um, in the context of my gardening system um, that is not the same as its proper function. Um, So this is why we need both of these notions of function. And novel prototypes can have system functions. It depends on whether they are, um, you know, being inserted within some system and are playing successfully some role within that system. Mm-hmm. If not, then they just don't have any functions at all. I know some of my critics are going to say, well, that's not comfortable. And um, I, yeah, I don't have any way of saying anything different. Yeah. And then uh, the phantom functions. The phantom functions are very interesting. So (laughs) they don't really show up in biology, uh, but they do show up in material culture. So things have, we think of them as having functions, but they are functions that the thing pretty obviously can't perform and never has been able to perform. So um, take something like an amulet for warding off the evil eye um, on the assumption that there is no evil eye. Um, the amulets are not doing that, and they never have been doing that. So, but they've been produced and used you know, as if they did that. Right? Mm-hmm. So you want to say that that's their proper function, um, but, you, but their history doesn't really allow you to say that they have a normal proper function in the sort of Millicanian sense or even in my more uh, loose um, sense of proper function. Hmm. Um, So one of the the big problems with proper functions is that um, in order for the proper function to be established, you know, say the ancestors of my coffee cup must have successfully performed the, the function of containing hot liquids often enough that we were prompted to reproduce them for that purpose. Um, But the problem with these phantom functional items is that since they never were, and in most cases simply can't perform the functions they're supposed to have, there's no history of success and reproduction for that success. so that that's why they can't have normal proper functions. Okay. I, we're I mean, oh, we're running out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> um, uh, so I mean, there's a lot of uh, interesting 
um, questions that I would like to, to pursue, but um, I, I think we should probably wrap up, and I'd like to... Um, uh, I'd like to find out wh where you intend to go next. I mean, what's your, um, are you going to follow up this, this particular book, some of the, you know, aspects of it, or are you jumping off into another direction? Um, what's the next big project? Um, well, I don't have a next big project. <laughs> In particular, I don't have another book project, really. I have a couple of things that I'm working on. So uh, one of the things that has been talked about recently quite a lot with regard to artifacts has to do with the metaphysics of artifacts. Um, so questions about whether artifacts are metaphysically real in the same way that, say, living beings are. Um, there's a whole discussion about that. I'm not particularly interested in that. There are people who are much better equipped to handle that than I am. Uh, but there's also a literature that's been growing up about artifact kinds, you know, whether artifacts whether there are artifact kinds in the same way that there are natural kinds. Mm -hmm. And um, I got interested in what seems to me like a prior question, which really hasn't been addressed very well, which is what about this category artifact itself? Mm -hmm. and as you know, and as we talked about earlier, um, I'm worried about that category. <laughs> it doesn't, it certainly doesn't serve my purposes very well. And I'm wondering whether it serves anybody's very well. Um, and in particular, because there are uh, some phenomena which are very ambiguous with regard to the attempt to draw some kind of a line between uh, culture and nature, or between artifact and naturally occurring objects. So in particular, I think of things like domesticated plants and animals. Are they artifacts? Well, they certainly seem like it, especially these days more and more. So, right, right. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm working on that particular problem. And another direction I want to go in, and this, this might go in the direction of a book project, but I haven't really done enough work on it yet. Uh, there are other disciplines in which material culture has been discussed at length and in very sophisticated ways. So anthropology, archaeology, material culture studies, design studies, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of work in those areas that I'm very interested in and I would like to um, mine for philosophical insights um, to carry forward various aspects of uh, the view that I have in this book. So to develop uh, my own version of the socio-generic approach mm -hmm. uh, more. Um, I think there are some very interesting things in, in archaeology and anthropology, well, archaeology in particular. Um, there's a vein of um, thinking about what they call material engagement, um, you know, how people engage with material culture and how this changes the culture, you know, the people themselves and their right. institutions and so on. So that's another direction I want to go in. Oh, very good. Um, well, I guess, yeah, we are, we are out of time, but, um, yeah, that's a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff to, to look at. Um, so, uh, I guess, um, I will just have to say goodbye, um, to a very interesting interview. Um, I thank you for joining us today. Um, and, uh, we'll be back in touch for some of your, um, future work, I hope. Yes, I hope so, too. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was very nice. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Professor Beth Preston of the University of Georgia. She's been talking about her new book, A Philosophy of Material Culture, 
Action, Function, and Mind, which is just out from Routledge. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.